0: From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clipping. I am Mickey Heller back, and with me I have two amazing other co-hosts. The first being Joshua Mawadara. Joshua, how you doing? What have you been working on?
1: What's good? Um, same old, same old. Covering South Asian artists in the diaspora for Brown Girl Magazine and been traveling a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big world traveler, big big Italy vibes. Um, Ryan Gore is our other co-host. What have you been getting yourself into, Ryan, besides every comic book store you can find?
2: Yeah, yeah. Apart from trying to track down Thundercat in comic <laughs> book stores, I've... Uh, <laughs> I've Also, been writing about South Asian people but for Mixmag. Yeah, I covered I'll Be the Nomad. Uh, His new album's amazing. Listen to that and read my interview with him on Mixmag.
0: Awesome, awesome. I guess I didn't say that I'm a a writer for Central Sauce when I introduced myself, um, as are these other amazing co-hosts. But yeah, let me give a quick rundown of the pieces that we'll be talking about today, and then we'll get into a little bit of what we've been listening to. So the first... uh, the first thing we'll be covering today is actually our first podcast on the podcast, which is a ep- an episode of Hip Hop Raised Me, which is a, a podcast hosted by DJ Semtex. And for this episode, he interviewed Dan Runsey from Trapital. Um, and the episode is called Dan Runcy, The Business of Hip Hop. Next, we will be going to my piece. Uh, that I brought, which is uh, how a Beatles obsessed producer helped Drake make his latest gloomy R&B hit and that's for Rolling Stone from a podcast regular writer Elias late at this point, point. and then we will close it out with another video exploration as Ryan has been com- become known for on the podcast and this video is entitled examining spirited away and one summer's day and that is a video done on YouTube by Mike the snare um but yeah real quickly before we get into uh the full podcast uh ryan why don't we start with you what have you been listening to lately
2: yeah we kind of mentioned it on last week's podcast but the The uh, sims album is incredible um just like it's been a while since i heard an album that just sounds as crisp as that album does like the way it's produced is just beautiful um that track uh is a standing ovation the one that like goes really intense and then really calm and switches between them like so beautifully it's incredible the way it does that um yeah like the only other song i can remember doing that really effectively is um eventually by tame impala um the name of the album is sometimes i might be (laughs) 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 introvert
1: on brand on Um, brand (laughs) <laughs> yes
0: very on for me right we were saying we were saying <laughs> before yeah. we started talking that uh if joshua goes to visit ryan in england that he may come out of his room to say what's up but we're not sure status pending
2: i can neither confirm or deny I can, um,
1: can the away. audience please tweet at, <laughs> can the listeners please tweet at ryan telling him to leave his bedroom if i come to london thanks
0: all right. But anyway, I wanted to say <laughs> sure. a little quick thing about The Little Sims too is just that Inflow executive produced that entire thing and Inflow, if anyone, and we're gonna talk about producers in my piece later, uh, is my favorite producer this year. He also fully executive produced uh the Cleo Soul album, which is something I think I mentioned the last time I was on the podcast, is something I've been had has been heavily in my rotation still. Um, and he did my, he was the executive producer of my favorite album of 2019, which was Michael Kiwanuka's Kiwanuka album too. So, uh, Inflow, if for whatever reason you're listening to this, please respond to my DMs. I'm trying to do the interview. <laughs> um, on that, uh, Joshua, what have you been listening to?
1: Um, a whole lot of guilty beats, uh, this past week when I was on vacation, we were bumping his joint with Georgia Smith. And the, the the Thames songs did not come to play. Um, I'm all types of happy listening to a lot of his productions recently. And then a very prominent Punjabi musician, Deljit Dosanj, just released a new album called Moonchild Era. And I've been craving a bungra track that feels like a bungra track, but has cool synth and a couple of new instrumental qualities to it. And... Thara Nayar, one of the bandmates of Delhi to Dublin, actually did a really sick, housey, vibey, atmospheric intro to one of the songs called The Chosen One. So that's what I've been bumping to.
0: Fire. Yeah, I'm just going to piggyback on what you said, Joshua, because uh, for I took a really long drive yesterday and played that Thames EP back to back six times, I believe, on the drive. And then on a little drive this morning, I took played it back again um what an amazing project guilty beats is the man also keep a lookout for a potential conversation between me and him coming soon um and uh guilty also produced he would he would be the 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 other mvp producer this year for me too he produced the majority of the shabo if you tapped in with the uh, uk mc shabo uh the majority of that project as well so he is definitely killing it and like joshima said that amazing georgia smith single is is that's the shit too um but yeah without any further ado why don't we move right into joshima's dissection of a podcast on a podcast and get real (laughs) metal with it
1: um well you know i had to i had to come back bold um so it only made sense to pick a uh, piece by two of my favorite hosts right now, actually. So I'm often on our podcast talking about the entrepreneurial side of music, different culture communities. I regularly analyze my own. And so Dan Renzi's newsletter for Capital is one of my favorite things to read. I think he's an incredible writer, succinct, effective, multifaceted, has a lot of perspective. And DJ Semtex is basically a hip hop god. So I thought that this would be a really fun podcast to bring because we've discussed a lot of little pieces of trends happening in music or why things chart NFTs, et cetera, et cetera. But we haven't really talked about the psychological effect of bridging knowledge in business and entrepreneurship and how that's happened in hip hop and created these sustainable intergenerational income streams for artists, right? So- I was all about that jazz. Um, so I wanted to see what you two thought of it.
2: Uh, yeah, like this interview, I feel like made me realize, it made me see the world through Josh's <laughs> <my> eyes. Because <laughs> 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 I'm someone who very rarely thinks about like the business side of music. It's just not something that I tend to like come to contact with, not something I tend to read about. So yeah, like Dan's perspective on this it's great because it's so far from what I tend to read about and it just casts a completely different color on like the way I see things and the way I see the industry but what I really found interesting about this is that both people in the conversation are the journalist, so you have like we get to analyze Semtex's kind of interview technique and we get Runsey's analysis of the industry and both are, like, separate forms of journalism happening at the same time. So it's a really cool and interesting thing for, like, our pa- our podcast to analyze. And uh, even without, like, getting into the actual content of what Dan's saying, before we even get there, I think it's, like, a super interesting, like, study for this podcast. Because there's journalism all over
1: the place. Which is kind of amazing, right? Um, Considering it's called The Business of yeah. Hip Hop, but it's
0: by two hip hop journalists. yeah. yeah Yeah. exactly i definitely wanted to talk about a little bit of that intergenerational thing that you were talking about joshua and the thing that really struck me was semtex um kind of breaking down the newer social media platforms uh like uh discord and tiktok specifically and how he felt as kind of an older i mean an og really in hip-hop that he felt kind of shunned out of those platforms thus unable to totally be tapped into the new stuff and he was kind of He, it's kind of an interesting thing because, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily the case, but I I feel like the kind of newer platforms and he used, you know, play, they started talking about places where, uh, different up and coming artists started to thrive, like MTV and kind of different things like that. And I don't ever remember that being exactly the energy where it was like, you know, the older group of people are just like not even allowed on this platform i don't know i mean obviously i wasn't alive for the birth of mtv but i don't think i've ever heard that kind of rhetoric shared and i think that's an interesting point as far as like the difference between that kind of stuff and those platforms or 106 and park kind of deal because 106 and park especially kind of like the tv stuff definitely shouted out like the you know there i remember watching 106 and park and then playing like throwback videos from the eight from like you know the late 80s when it was like you know the early 2000s and things like that but that kind of like technological side of things where in the the world of the internet which i feel like is just like a specific thing that i've been talking about all the time and referring to it actually as a separate world that people are existing in um it's it just a really interesting thing to me to to for someone of his caliber to feel like he he is not being granted access to those spaces because it's not vibe almost. Um, but yeah, so I thought that was a really interesting point that was being made.
1: I think that has a lot to do with like silos and saturation. So I think about this a lot in hindsight, because though we're all of very different age ranges as a Semtex in comparison to us, we can still frame of reference, similar outlets, right? We all remember the first time we saw something on BH1 or listening to The Breakfast Club or a hundred other things, but it's very hard for someone who's not been on the internet or in these extremely new platforms like what's trending on Snapchat or TikTok or Discord or Triller or Clubhouse, to be able to say that they have the same reference point because I think there's so much more saturation now, which is amazing because it means so much more opportunity for a lot of different artists that may have not gotten that before. But that also means that it's almost impossible to be in all the places that music is being discovered or promoted or consumed and fandom and community is being built around it. But something that really sat with me was they talk about Diddy. Right and, and his many streams of income, and the Ciroc boys, and Shanjan John. And I remember buying <laughs> clothes from them very young, and that being such a statement, but I wasn't consuming the music then, right? So I didn't necessarily understand what this clothing line meant in the grand scheme of this person's kingdom and empire they were trying to build. And I thought that was really fascinating because now we look at artists and we're like cool, 6 months made a viral track, gonna end up in a movie, gonna get some sync, gonna end up with merch out, gonna end up with a liquor deal in the next 3 weeks, right? Like you're like cool, who's sponsoring your EP release party? Um but these things weren't always given for artists. And and I think they opened the the podcast with I hope I'm quoting this correctly, but they talk about how they really hip hop artists had only ever messed with brown liquor, literally. They hadn't done anything that was remotely in white liquor, right? Or what at the time was mainstream consumed alcohol companies and conglomerates that were sponsoring a lot more pop artists and other things were not sponsoring music at all. So it's wild to me to think that something some. One to five hip hop artists spent years building is now kind of like a turnkey expectation that's associated with success or fame.
0: That's interesting. That makes me think of two things. So, in the right after the kind of ditty mention by Run C, when Semtex kind of asked him who he was admiring or looked up to in kind of those, uh, earlier days of hip hop when he was kind of becoming aware of it is he also mentioned master P and that, and how like something like master P what he was doing was totally unheard of. And now, especially now, like all of these individual rappers own their own labels and kind of have this agency after they've had their own rap careers themselves. Um, and then he also mentioned later, um, the, in in kind of the same token. And then also on some level, what Master P would have been able to do with the access of now. And then he also mentioned Nipsey Hussle and how Nipsey Hussle, very similar to Master P in a way, Um, And I I think I've even heard Nipsey Hussle talk about Master P was creating this kind of separatist existence as an artist, which Master P was doing on a label level and Nipsey Hussle was doing on a individualized level and how Nipsey Hussle would have also really thrived in this new lane because he was already doing things like selling his album entirely separately from the streaming services and sold for a higher price and multiple different things like that as his own entity. And now things like NFTs and crypto are making it way more possible for artists to do that. Um. So yeah, I thought that was also a really interesting part of the conversation. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah,
2: and that kind of. Yeah, good for it.
1: Go ahead. I was gonna ask you your take on the bit about Rihanna, but go first.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, I was just gonna say about um how they use NFTs and crypto as like a jumping off point to talk about the future of like business in music, and. I think that kind of links to what Semtex was saying about feeling locked out of certain communities. He talked about like how he doesn't know how to listen to like an NFT album. I don't know how to listen to like an NFT album either. Like, yeah, me when, either for the record. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> 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 Exactly. And like that's kind of that's such a monumental change for people like even people younger people than us who engage with technology on quite a surface level, I feel like crypto and all this blockchain kind of stuff is quite still quite dense and deep and difficult to like i guess like untangle for a lot of people so if like music consumption is going in that space um i think once talked about like how apps like Robinhood have made um bitcoin um trading like really simple i wonder like what innovations we'll see that will kind of see like crypto music be more available. And I thought, yeah, I thought that was an really interesting conversation. Uh, what was your question again, Joshua?
1: Um, well, so I remember the first piece I brought to the podcast of Dan Runcie's was actually his his newsletter on NFTs. And I talked I a think lot about... I that was about, the three of
0: us, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, it was, was the it three was. of us. It was. Hey, bring it
1: Full back circle. Right um, I think one of the things I really love about the internet is that for Dan to be able to talk about a topic like that and it speak to a community so vastly that may have not ever been spoken to about nfts before in a way that we could all understand and relating it back to entertainment is a product of less gatekeeping because of the internet right the structures that keep us out of things haven't changed all that much just access to wi-fi has Um, and and even that is still really doesn't exist in many many places around the world but it is more meaningful than it used to be but something i thought was fascinating on the same token of this knowledge on how to invest or treat these things that might sometimes feel like a trend, sometimes feel like something you really need to get in on early is the comment they made about Rihanna and how Rihanna has also amassed this empire with Fenty and her various albums. and, But she also suffered an extreme loss because of bad business, right? With her issue with her accountants. We've seen a 100 artists talking about their royalties and masters, etc. I think it's so vital that... Access to surface level information doesn't replace the need for expertise knowledge that artists get from somewhere to inform their decision making because the long-term effect of investing in property, Dan talks about this, and stocks and making sure you still have an income outside of what you're putting away, is where are you putting it and who told you to do that and how did you research it? Because these things only become fruitful if we're able to capitalize on them well not just because we know about them and we did something, right? Like that chance of you blindly investing in something you know nothing about and it working out isn't that large. So I'm always fascinated by, is this the way we now knowledge share with each other? Is it consuming each other's content, analyzing it, and hoping that dissemination reaches enough new younger artists that they get to move differently?
0: (laughs) That's interesting. I mean, I think the, the short answer to that is is yes, it seems like with, with avenues like Trapital and Runcy and that's like kind of the basis of Semtes asking him, asking him on the show. I think that that really kind of is the way. And I mean, unfortunately for Rihanna, obviously like her failure, well, she's made out fine, but you know, but her failure on some level, and, and they mentioned that more than more than once, but her, you know, her failure <laughs> on some level is really the way how artists who come after her are going to learn. Um, and it seemed—I mean, it seemed like she was pretty open. I mean, she was obviously accusing the people publicly of what they were doing to her about kind of what was happening and um, the failures. I actually—I dare to say that I—I I wish I heard more, even successful, because I think any successful um, entrepreneur within music has, you know, equal or more of the number of failures like Rihanna has had, even to get to the point where she is at. And I actually—I think there could be even more. Um, sharing of the L's. I think that's like a, a a place that would be really really good to go to. And I I wonder um, who's gonna have the the podcast where it's literally like, hey, I'm j- literally just inviting people on to talk about their L's and what they learned.
1: <laughs> I would actually love love to hear that. And I don't think it's exclusive to like music or artist entrepreneurship. I think it's any entrepreneurship at any level. The first five minutes you open a company, you've had five L's already. I can guarantee it. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really cool.
0: Word, I literally have no idea how to transition this into my piece. I've been trying to think about <laughs> a way, but I think that they're so totally separate kind of entities in themselves uh but yeah i'm i'm excited to to talk about my piece for rolling stone written by the uh ever frequent uh podcaster uh or person we speak about on the podcast elias late um and this is a a, a, just read the title again how a beatles obsessed producer helped drake make his latest gloomy r&b hit and uh apologies to ryan in advance for setting him up to have to talk about Drake, which I know he hates to do, but I, uh, I do think that there is a lot that, um, that Ryan will like to talk about in the context of like what this piece means and what it, what it's overarchingly saying about the producer behind the scenes and what his interests are, um, So, yeah, firstly, again, Elias Slate has been featured on our podcast a few times before, and he is truly one of the great music writers out there. Many of his pieces are ones where I'm in awe of his more technical detail as he analyzes, a lot of the times, interestingly enough, which would have been a good transition from the first piece, details about the financial kind of side or, like, behind-closed-doors workings, Um, of the industry. And when I, when I read his piece or talk about them, I'm often like, wow, this is in a realm of shit that I don't think I could ever really write or investigate quite as well. It's not in the vibe of really what I do or see myself doing or my place in kind of writing and journalism. But this piece, funny enough, which I I was surprised that it was him that wrote it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Is one where I was like, wow, I really wish I had written this. Um, and I think that's actually kind of a funny rarity, um, for at least pieces that I brought onto the podcast. I feel like I, um, tend to bring ones that are more in the realm of like, wow, this is like a thing that's beyond, like, I just appreciate this from afar of like someone did this amazing piece of work. Um, but yeah, this one, this one I think is really in line with things that I've, you know, been doing and something I would have wanted to write myself. So shouts to Elias for doing this. Um. He connected a lot of dots for me And it was an exciting read because of a few things The song he was speaking about In the piece Race My Mind Firstly is literally my favorite song Off the, the new Drake album He's talking about highlighting the artistic merit Of the producer and his unique story Which is a thing as I've talked about And, and plugged I think even that <laughs> With Somo, one of the last times Where she said she would lube my plug Was about that <laughs> uh, The column that I do highlighting producer stories And I also found out that this guy monsoon i believe isn't it just pronounce it monsoon his producer name uh produces with and for jonah yano who has my favorite album of 2020 which i've written about for central sauce uh late without realizing wrote something that almost felt meant for me to check out which was really dope um he opens the piece even and speaks right to my <laughs> Drake-intrigued soul, basically talking about how Race My Mind is sort of an inverted version of the style J- Drake introduced on his track, Marvin's Room. It was a real you-had-me-at-hello moment for me when I started reading the piece. Uh, then the piece takes an interesting turn, which is definitely foreshadowed by the title about the influence for the sounds used in Race My Mind and gives me gave me an understanding of why it stands out to me sonically as its own entity. This goes with uh, Monsoon's interest in the technicality of the Beatles' deep cut tracks, his parents being immigrants, thus not providing musical access, so he had to dig harder for the music that he would find in, in a way that would make him more obsessed with that process. Then dives into his interest in sampling and neo-soul and yacht rock and how, at the end of the day, it all made this wild blend and this song and other things that he's worked on are the sort of result. Uh, Though the read is concise, I think Late does a really good job of interweaving the quotes with the storyline and presents a really good opening case for why he will be a producer to watch with a unique set of sonic perspectives. Yeah, so uh, that actually was much longer of an intro than I meant to do, but I think I got it all out. <laughs> um, and not not as long as I've done before, but uh, as you can hopefully hear, this piece made me very excited. Um, so why don't we start with ryan and uh <laughs> let's see if he can avoid talking about drake but still talk about the piece or maybe he will say something about drake and surprise us all but what uh, what details of the piece stood out to you ryan
2: uh the piece had drake in a title so i didn't read it
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah i'm joking um <laughs> no he's <it's> not <laughs> no i really liked that this piece actually wasn't about drake like i was quite relieved yeah Yeah, it had me worried worried. but uh, yeah i was hooked from like the second paragraph on (laughs) 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 no
0: elias late you had me at hello you had ryan after hello after a few minutes of like the awkward hello how you doing (laughs) and then then you hooked him right in
2: (laughs) yeah because when he started talking about monsoon's music and i listened to the songs that are embedded i was like oh my god i love this dude
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: the yes. <laughs> I love this guy's music. And then find out again he worked with um Johnny Yeno, And like we, yeah, I, I really like the album as well from last year, Souvenir. Um yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed this piece and yeah, I found a new artist who I like out of it, so that's awesome. Um Yeah, but for, like from a technical standpoint, we talk about how Elias is like one of the best writers doing it right now. And it shows in this piece and it just got me kind of thinking about how meticulous you have to be to write a profile in general on an Like, compared to a transcript, it's a lot more cutthroat. And there's a lot of threads of conversation that, you know, if you're writing a really good profile, you just... Don't make those phrases. Don't make it a lot of the time, you know. In a transcript, you can afford to go off topic and kind of veer back in the conversation because it's meant to be a conversation. It's meant to be a bit more free form. But in a profile, you're telling a strict story. Really, you're picking very specific quotes to tell this story, and you have to like decide that before you start the piece. Really, and. I found myself reading the quotes that Elias picked and just thinking, I'm really glad that made the piece, you know? (laughs) Like, I'm really glad you included that. Like, what he said earlier about him having, like, no foundation in Western music. So that just gave him the ability to be eclectic rather than, like, be kind of lost in the West. And I think that's really cool. And that's such a cool insight, I thought. And it fits perfectly within the story that Elias wanted to tell. And, yeah, um it's yeah. yeah i'm just, just really lucky <laughs> that exists
0: yeah yeah i thought and i mentioned before it was kind of concise but i think uh the thing that's difficult with kind of and this is not that long of a piece but it's a, it's a good couple paragraphs is you worry that you know you're going to you're going to not be able to in a profile at least when i've written profiles you know when you have to make cuts to the quotes and really make sure you're keeping the storyline that you're going to not be able to get the sense of the artist's voice that you're talking to, which is some why when I first even started writing profiles, I was like, oh, but I really like having transcriptions because even though you can't hear them, you, I feel like if I just like leave most of the quote out there, you know, people can really get a sense of like how they're talking and how they're thinking. Um, but I think what was really cool and kind of something that was like a little gem that I'll, um keep was i felt like this piece and i'm i'm still kind of deciphering it and and be interested to what you guys think really felt like i got a sense of like how monsoon thinks and his kind of the the kind of i felt like i got who he was as his as a person and the way he carried himself by how the quotes were inserted into the paragraphs and we've talked a lot about this on the podcast about kind of writers adopting the voice of the person that they're talking to or talking about like with our mf doom uh podcast that we did about how uh writers who were you know commemorating him were started to adopt his flow of his raps a little bit um but i felt like i the the rhythm of the piece really made me understand um what what type of the way monsoon thinks so i thought that was cool um joshua what did what did you think what were your favorite parts
1: uh, this whole piece felt like when you go shopping and you see something that reminds you of someone and you're like, I must get this for them. Or you see a meme and someone sends it tune, you and you're like, God, this person really knows me. So when Mickey picked <laughs> this piece, I was like, wow, I love my Central Sauce co-hosts. They really yeah. get me. Um, <laughs> I, ever since Mickey started his Guap Magazine column on the producer's voice, interviewing and profiling a lot of different producers, I catch myself now seeing it everywhere, like when you buy a red car and then you see a red car everywhere, and I'm obsessed with reading pieces about buy for producers, and it was really interesting because... I think in the collection of pieces I've read recently, a lot of them take producers who are early in their career and try to add this grandiosity or depth to their answers. And I really enjoyed that this one was just straight up like what 23-year-old Monsoon thinks about the music he's making. And there was a specific quote where he talks about, you know, working on your own music and vocals and releasing it to the world is really stressful. And sometimes working on other people's art takes a little bit of the pressure off or something to that effect and I remember reading that and being like yes that's how 98% of us feel about everything we do yes it's very stressful to release your own shit and yes it's definitely easier to do something with somebody else and their vision and supporting their art and that's a great way to start doing things um And outside of getting to know him a little bit, which I thought was really fun and cool in the piece, I love the word choice in the piece. There's words. I feel like it's been a minute since I've heard someone use the word curmudgeonly, right? Like, I don't even know if I can say that anymore. (laughs) I don't even know if I can say that anymore, but I just really enjoyed reading it. It felt like something fresh on the palette, but informative. I walked away knowing new music, knowing about a new producer, but the writing style was so fulfilling, but the sentence structure was also varied, which made it fun to read.
0: I like that quote, pull a lot that you said, because it, it, it like goes in alignment with kind of two things I've been thinking about a lot, which is like that you have to serve before you receive or, or serve before you kind of present yourself on your own. You have to like be able to offer something first. And I think that that is a real representation of that and a really cool kind of tidbit that Monsoon is aware of. But also potentially he could seems like he's also just hyper self-aware of potentially that being his lane that like that is where he really feels like he can thrive. And that's like a very cool, a cool and important kind of step in the progression of life. And, uh, uh, I I thought that was, again, that got a real, in the way I was talking with about Ryan was saying earlier, has got a real sense of who he was as a person through it. And even in such a short, concise time, which is difficult to do. Um, I have a few, uh, just two kind of questions that I wanted to pose to the group. Um, and we've kind of talked about this one already. Um, but when I think about my column when I think about other pieces that are like this, um, I I continually think about what other, because obviously we all agree and Elias late agrees that the highlighting producers as their own artists, rather than behind the producers that the artists that they produce for is important. But who do you think are kind of other people within, um, Either the making of music or the music industry, who should be more jur- focused on by journalists? And I know I brought one piece on on Solange's engineer, and that's my answer really to it is like the engineering people. But who, who do you all think?
2: Yeah, engineers is a good shout, especially after what's come to light of the whole Kanye the thing. Kanye, geez, right. like like really horrible stuff. If you haven't heard about it, just like horrible conditions he makes his engineers working. Um, but yeah, engineers are definitely a good shout. Um, I interviewed uh, a music video director like oh yeah um, right. not oh. long ago, and I think that's a really cool uh side of things to um to get more insight on because that's that's a really big part of music is how it's visualized you know um and a and rs for sure uh yeah that that's my answer.
0: Well, Ryan, thank you for setting up my <laughs> second um, shout out to someone who I would love for them to answer my DMs so I can yep. interview them. Dave Myers, who just produced, who just directed the Way Too Sexy video and who is the longtime music video directing legend. God, I would love if you answered my DMs mm-hmm. so we could get an interview. my God. <laughs> um, So I wholeheartedly agree with Ryan, and I'm glad that on this episode, I've shouted out the two people who I want to interview most, Inflow and Dave Myers. Hit me up, guys. <laughs> this episode
1: should just be titled The Full circle. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna plus one Ryan's statement on music video directors because mm-hmm. it was my interview with a music video director named Shomi Patwari yes. that landed me on the Central Sauce team, um, yes, yes. which I think is very full circle. But also, listen, like I'll die on this hill, but songwriters just don't get the credit and the value for their time and skill set that they deserve you dissect any song and if you rob it of its beat and its lyrics you just got someone that could maybe hum some shit um Mm -hmm. so that's not to take away from artists they're wonderful and talented but it's boggling to me after having seen what splits look like and how songwriters are credited and where they stand in 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 the pyramid of hierarchy and it's 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 assault
0: yeah, it's the same thing with, with kind of the traditional way that the the music industry and, and the music journal, journalism industry has been set up it is on some levels to hide behind the curtains. And the reality, and I've, I've talked to people about this too, of like, well, maybe they don't want to be shown. And the reality more times than not is no one's ever asked. And then when you do ask, which has happened many times in my producer column, they're like, oh my God, thank you for offering the space to talk about my story. And I'm like, how has no one asked you <laughs> you've produced for like a, six of my favorite artists right now this is wild um so i feel like that's got to be the same for songwriters and it should not be like a, a shamed thing for people to you know <laughs> to talk about songwriting for other people it should be at the forefront and they should be embraced especially journalistically i think too um and i hope that there's no like behind the scenes stuff that's still kind of Uh, within the industry of like you know i I would assume at some point there are labels not wanting songwriters to talk that much openly about the process to have the uh, the you know the artists get the credit and i hope we're starting with kind of journalistically and and culturally to move past that where all of the individual artists who work on anything have the opportunity to be highlighted at the forefront
1: i think it's Um, really wild because I used to think what you think where I was like, oh, maybe this person has been bought out. Maybe someone doesn't want them to talk about it. Maybe they don't want to talk about it, right? Because there's a lot of stigmas associated with being a songwriter or being a producer that is doing something for someone. Um, But then I study markets like India who have no distribution publishing and there's a lot of problems there. But what they do do really well is that every single person that's part of the song is actually as famous as one another. So like everyone knows the producers and songwriters there as much as they know the vocalists. And I always find that fascinating because... Are there business issues and how they get paid? Absolutely. But in terms of what the public sees, everyone knows who iman is, but everyone also knows who Beep Rock is and everyone also knows who Diljeet is. And they're not considered at odds with one another in that way. Um, so I think it's possible. I think we should put the people in the credits on.
0: Definitely. Um, and just the last little fun one before we move on to Ryan's. Uh, I was just going to ask because the, and I don't think we've talked about it really much in our discussion, but uh, specifically the piece is about uh, Monsoon being influenced initially, at least by the Beatles. So I was just wondering uh, what your favorite Beatles songs are. And I will say first mine is Eleanor Rigby.
1: Ooh.
2: You're to- killed. <laughs> I, don't know Beatles songs
1: I would probably <laughs> you're have to say killed. Penny Lane. <laughs> or while my guitar gently
0: weeps. Well there you go. Ryan. I just I just said <laughs> I
2: don't know the names of to Beatles <laughs> <song> <laughs> Top Ned. I don't know <laughs> that Charlie. I love Kings that <laughs> because you're the one British <laughs> so. voice
0: on here. That's amazing. And uh on that on that note, Not what in an ama- <laughs> 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 That's great. On that note, uh
1: on this episode of Why I don't don't move don't we move to something
0: that Ryan does give a shit about, being <laughs> being, uh, spirited away and anti-capitalism. Ryan, Ryan, your alley.
2: <laughs> yes. You You know who who isn't from Liverpool? Liverpool. Hayao Miyazaki, the director of Spirit of the Way, 2002. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, the video agenda continues. So I've brought a YouTube video from a channel called Mike the Snare. Mike spelt like microphone. And it's called uh, Examining Spirit of the Way and One Summer's Day. One Summer's Day being the recurring main theme from the movie Spirit of the Way. One of the best movies of all time, you know what it is. Uh, So, (laughs) the thing that uh, connected with me about this video is the idea of deducing meaning from an instrumental piece. Because, like, when I analyse music in my articles, I tend to have lyrics there, like, words with set, defined meanings that I can base my analysis around, you know? If I want to talk about the instrumental, usually it's, like, about the feel of it and, like, a very subjective and individual feeling that it gives me. But it's not based in like quote unquote fact, the way that like lyrical analysis is. Which leads to like the thesis of Mike Snare's video, like as he puts it, is it possible to channel channel the pain, the beauty, the spirit of change through music? And by that instrumental music. And he uses his knowledge of music theory, so two episodes in a row where I've brought <laughs> a music theory centred piece. But he uses his knowledge of music theory to analyze the instrumental and through that, we come to understand that One Summer's Day is an instrumental representation of Chihiro's journey through the movie, and it, rep- it does represent the idea of change through just sounds, through instrumental music. So he, talk- he starts out talking about how the notes played at the start of the song are almost unstable and unpredictable, and how the piece kind of grows to be more melodic and essentially builds momentum to show how Chihiro grows in confidence throughout Spirit of the Way. And the video is just amazing to me because it makes and backs up a point that I literally did not have the tools to make or back up. <laughs> it's something that I talk about all the time like that marriage of the technical and emotional parts of journalism. It's extremely technical because it's going into music theory that I don't think is just like widely known to casual music listeners or people who casually will watch Spirited Away. But it has that kind of uh, subliminal effect on you um where you kind of understand what the music is trying to say without you being able to express how it's trying to say that and Mike the snare kind of just gives us the vocabulary to describe like what we what the song makes us feel and i think that's really cool um Joshmer, you said that the video had that killed you. you said the video killed you so i'm curious as to why
1: I meant that in the way that we say things are sick and in a good way, Um, you know, young lingo out here. Um, No, I really enjoyed it for the exact sentiment you just ended on. I think that a lot of times we're using words to describe words and lyrics and production, but I don't have the musical skill and knowledge to be able to say this beat pattern or this pentameter makes me feel X and that's why it's doing that, right? Um, And so for me, it was really, really cool to listen to someone technically give me the tools to wrap my mind around the sensation my mind and body are feeling while listening to something. That was my favorite part about it. I think his tone and delivery style is also really funny. It reminds me of like a Bob Ross painting video, but also a really cool like gamer voiceover. And I was like, okay, wait, I'm a little bit into this.
0: Yeah, I think his I think his voice definitely has like a funny pattern at some points too cuz sometimes he sounds like he's talking very casually in his regular speaking voice and then he sounds like he's performing in other parts and I can't tell if it's intentional or not, or not and it's very funny. <laughs> um but what I want to talk about about this that I I thought was really cool and this has kind of happened both times uh the the last time Ryan that you brought in a kind of video and then this time is the the tactful way that you know, um, both of the journalists are using the medium of video for through journalism effectively. So, uh, and you talked about a lot of the technical kind of music centric language to explain the point. So I don't think that's nearly as effective as just like, let's say a podcast or universally effective is a better way to say it as a podcast or as a written piece necessarily. But that kind of like trio of aligning the sound him talking about it and the visual of the music theory in front of you even if you don't understand how to read music you get when he like highlights the notes as they come out that even just looking at it visually and the thing that he talks about at the beginning is how you see each individual note as it comes in pretty evenly on the 1 and then that final note in that intro thing comes in on the 3 of the third bar and That sounds like really complicated, but if you saw the visual or if you watch the visual from listening to this podcast, you'll see that using that type of storytelling within it makes it so even if you don't know jack shit about musical, about music theory, you can understand exactly the point he's making in real time and it's a full, all encompassing experience. So it's really using that medium to the epitome of its use. And I, yeah, I thought that was a really intriguing um, way that he then eventually paralleled that kind of like, off feeling note that jumps in out of nowhere that feels surprising and why it's surprising for how it's executed with the the kind of state of mind of the character as they go throughout the story and how there's a specific similarity into like this beginning feeling of comfort and this semi unidentified um, discomfort that comes later that you then have to kind of like search for the meaning of um, and uh, yeah I thought that was really cool.
2: Yeah, the idea of searching for meaning is quite inherent. Like, the uh, the experience of watching Spirit of the Way and kind of putting yourself in the shoes of Chihiro. Because as Mike Dissner points out in the video, it's a really, really weird <laughs> me- movie. Like he says, like, for a Western viewer, you know? And, like, he says, like, something that I thought was really profound and something that explains why, like, the mu- movie so much is, like, this weird, weird world is just presented without comment and without explanation, Like, you see a lot of Western movies, the need to explain everything and the need to have, like, an exposition scene every five minutes just to tell the audience, like, this is what's happening, by the way. But Spirit of the Way, it's like, here's this this world. Deal with these frog people, (laughs) you know? And, yeah, um, that that feels... uh, What's the word I'm trying to say? That idea kinda of trickles down through every stage of the process of the movie. That kinda of core philosophy of the movie finds its way into the, the music as well. Cause as he says, it starts off really strange for for a, a classical piece and then kind of builds into these different melodic sections and how the uh the different the way it's used in the movie um, at different stages it kind of adds sections, adds instruments, kind of just distorts what you're expecting from the piece as it goes on um, yeah it kind of it, the whole thing is just about playing with your expectations or trying to make sure that you don't have any and kind of making you find the meaning in that and yeah this right. I think that, that
0: there's a parallel from how he told the story in the vid- or how he kind of did laid out his discovery process in it too felt very paralleling to that as how like you know you don't exactly he was willing to be wrong but but then show it in the video like he he very much like in the process of. Writing a paper, you're almost taught to be like, I'm, I'm going to make this point, and then I'm going to prove the point. And he was like, I'm going to make this theory, and then I'm going to kind of go... Show you in real time even though you know I'm editing my kind of going Through if my theory works And being like oh this part of the theory Works and then this part of the theory Doesn't totally work but then we kind of end Up here which I think is is a Rarity because we all kind of want to be right All the time and show how right We are and I thought that was a really cool Cool kind of tidbit that he was like Well this you know I thought this but then In this section it kind of Disproved this part of the thing I was saying but This part actually works and I thought I thought that was that was really cool and human and and interesting. Yeah.
1: I love being robbed of my predispositions. I think it's almost meditative in a sense whereby we do all these things to make our brains stop having ideas so that we can let it wander to maybe ideas we would have never had. And I think this did that for me, where I was like, wow, I in the first 30 seconds this is not sonically what I expected um or descriptively what I expected and that's freaking great. It's great <laughs> that I couldn't have anticipated this and now I don't know where to go. And maybe not having a destination makes the journey better.
0: Hey, that's a bar. <laughs> that's
2: <laughs> one hell of a bar. Totally.
0: <laughs> but
2: yeah, I've been I've been kind of thinking about um it may, this video kinda of made me think about other movie scores that I really love but don't have the words to describe why I love them so much or why they speak to me so much and uh Mickey knows that I've been religiously listening to the Minari soundtrack this year since that dropped and I was just wondering for you guys uh what movie soundtracks would you like just a forensic explanation of um, in this kind of style,
0: you know, I'm going to, ha- I'm going to like answer your question with something that's not really the answer to the question, but <laughs> because I'm pr- like your Beatles <laughs> thing. I haven't thought about it really, nor do I know enough to say, but yeah. this does make me think <laughs> of a kind of another point, uh, that I wanted, which is like, I would very much like a technical analysis of something like this in the chord progression of rap songs. Like, I think that that actually, like, it doesn't have to be, even like this, where I think that, you know, as, as much as this is interesting, obviously this type of music is literally for, you know, bal- showing some emotive thing through a story. Like it's used for storytelling specifically. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like. Um, and it's just instrumental, but like kind of seeing how, you know, instrumentals and hip hop use chord balancing to like propel rapper storytelling, I think would be really interesting. And I think that actually this structure, I kept thinking that while watching, it has a lot of potential to, to be done within the context of, of stuff that we talk about all the time on the podcast and the music that we all regularly listen to. And, um, yeah, Ryan. I mean, you got to get your boy to do some some like art <laughs> rap instrumental <laughs> analysis. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like do some whatever the chords behind Open Mike Eagle are and, you know, see what the vibes. Because uh, I think that could be cool. I'm there.
2: I'm
0: there.
1: Weirdly enough, I do have an answer to this. It's not a movie, but um, a good friend of mine, shout out DJ Vika, recently was like, did you watch White Lotus? And I was like, no, I didn't. And then I watched it and I was like, Cristobal Tapia DeVere, you have officially fucked me up. It is one of the greatest scores I have heard in quite possibly a decade. Um, so if you have not watched White Lotus on HBO, please, just for the sake of the score, go you know, listen I to that what,
0: shit. The, the, you're talking about the series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that score is crazy. And it's yeah, funny. Yeah, also... I could think of TV scores way quicker than I could think of. Like, like- I broke the, the rules. Like, oh yeah, go for it. Yeah, no, good. Cause then you made me think of shit that I actually have thought about. The Night Of on HBO has a really amazing score. Ooh, Specifically so with- Yo, Red HBO Zahman with these and, scores. And uh, Michael K. Williams, RIP. But that, yo, The Night Of has a crazy score. I remember thinking about that while I was watching it.
1: I remember I looked up the series after I watched a few episodes and I think Vulture did a piece where they're like, the White Lotus score is trying to make you anxious, is the headline. And I was like, yes, yes, it is. I have anxiety Mm. now. Thanks, Cristobal.
2: Yeah, speaking of anxious scores, anything but in a (laughs) Saffty Brothers movie, I guess oh yeah 100%. oh my
0: god dude uncut gems yes yeah, holy crazy. shit someone should def oh my That'd god that would be incredible Mike right the snare that's a fucking layup for you you're <laughs> welcome on that one just do uncut gems next and you got a winner
2: 100 um but yeah for me as i said minari because i want to break down why it's so wholesome and comforting because <laughs> and at the same time it's so musically fulfilling and emotional it's like how does the music have basically no edge and no abrasion at all but just be still so fulfilling. Like, I want to know why. And um, the other one would be another Ghibli movie uh, for My Neighbor Totoro. There's a track called uh, A Huge Tree in the Sukamori Forest. And, like, where these fucking huge stinks come in and it's one of the best moments musically in that movie. Uh, I just want to analyze, like, yeah, I would love an interview with um, Joe Husashi, I think that's how you pronounce the name. Really sorry if it's not. But about, like, composing that and just a breakdown of it because yeah it's it just stands out in that really quiet is this
1: mood. our new spin-off series are we starting yeah. a podcast where we dissect scores and invite composers and music supervisors <laughs>
2: yeah. please do and I, I, I tried to get in contact with emil missouri missouri who did the um minari soundtrack but Never replied. So yeah, another person I'm in your inbox. Please <laughs> respond in here. Dear Christopher,
1: I will be DMing you. Um a a a celebrity shot from <laughs> our incredible editor, Charlie Taylor. He says the social network, the Italian job, Beale Street and Shaq. Oh are
0: Beale scores. Street. Yo, that's facts. I remember that score too. So crazy.
1: You can't see it, but every time Charlie nods, I feel really validated in my delivery. <laughs>
0: All right. well yeah shout out shout out all of those scores for sure um they've definitely had an effect on all of us and uh let me just run through these pieces one more time before we wrap it up uh the first one was our first discussion of a podcast on the podcast of hip-hop raise me podcast by dj semtex it was an interview with dan runcy dan runcy the business of hip-hop then we had my piece from rolling stone written by elias late how a beatles obsessed producer helped drake make his latest gloomy r&b hit and then we closed it out as you just heard us talk about ryan with examining spirited away spirited away and one summer's day by mike the snare the youtube sensation and uh yeah um mike the snare we'd love to hear more analysis of uh different scores from different movies man you're killing it um, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Thanks, y'all.
1: This
2: episode of Central Source featured Ryan Gore, Mikaela and Josh Moroder of the Central Source Crave Collective. The episode is edited by me, Chai Taylor, author of Fifth Element Podcast Network. Music for this show is funded by Barsity. Plays the jailbreakers for the ability to use. This has been the Central Source of Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Links with Barsity, Jailbreakers, Central Source Fifth Element and content coming up the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. If we hope to see you next time. As we continue our search for Source.